Good morning, church. As we start today, I want to just say that words are powerful. I think we probably all know words are powerful and they're important in life. But even more important than normal words are first words, right? I mean, think about it. When you have a new baby in your home and they're on the verge of saying their first words, the parents have this competition. What's the first word going to be? Is it mama or dada? And parents will try to t coach the kids and teach them to say their respective names so that they can have bragging rights because the first words matter. What name the kid says first is significant to the parents. But it's not just babies' first words that carry extra weight. I mean, when something great is accomplished, the first words said when that is accomplished carry extra weight. I mean, how many of you can quote Neil Armstrong's first words once he stepped onto the moon? That's one small step for man and one giant leap for mankind. I'm guessing a lot of you knew that. But how many of you can quote the second person who stepped on the moon's first words when they stepped on the moon? I don't think anyone can because they weren't the first words spoken on the moon, right? And even in movies, how many movies have plots? where it revolves around someone saying something stupid at the start when they first meet someone, making a bad first impression, and then having to spend the rest of the movie overcoming that bad first impression. So they say something offensive or hurtful or insensitive to a stranger, and then they walk into a meeting at work and learn that this stranger is all of a sudden their new boss. Or they say something insensitive or rude or mean and then on the drive home they get in a car crash and the person they just insulted happens to be the EMT who drags them out of the wreck and then they fall in love but because of the first words being insulting or offensive or rude or thoughtless they have to spend the rest of the movie convincing the other person that the first impression their words left isn't who they really are. Words are imp important but first words carry extra weight. And today we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 24, wrapping up our journey through the book of Luke, finally, two years later. And we're going to see the first words spoken about Jesus and the first words spoken by Jesus after he rose from the dead. And these words have a ton to teach us about the significance of the resurrection and the life that we are called to live in response to the resurrection. And what we'll see today is that Jesus' resurrection calls us to a new way of living built around God's word. Jesus' resurrection calls us to a new way of living built around God's word. So we'll see the resurrection, God's word, and our response. But first, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the record that you've given us of Jesus and his life and the amazing things that he did. And we thank you for the rest of your word as well and how it interprets to us Jesus' life and death and resurrection and, and gives those things context and deeper meaning so that we can understand more clearly what you were doing through him. Thank you that you love us. I pray that you would speak to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so first, let's look at the resurrection. So as a reminder, last week we left off, Jesus was dead. He had been brutally murdered on a Roman cross as his after his fellow countrymen called for his death. And at the end of last week's passage, there was this section we didn't really have time to look at. Uh, this man named Joseph came. 
he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate said, sure, take it. And Joseph buried Jesus' body in Joseph's own family tomb. And then the passage closed by saying that it was the Sabbath. Everyone rested because it was the Jewish day of rest when no work was allowed to be done. So Sabbath, it starts at sundown Friday and runs until sundown Saturday. So they were burying Jesus on Friday afternoon, late in the afternoon. They had to do it quickly so they could be done before the sun set because you can't do any more work once the sun sets. Which means there are certain parts of the burial process, like covering the body in, in spices and herbs, that they had to skip over on Friday afternoon. And there were some women who were really close friends with Jesus. They followed him and they wanted to make sure that their teacher and friend got the proper burial that he deserved. So they went home, they prepared these spices and herbs, and then Sunday morning, first thing in the morning, once it was light enough that they could see and the Sabbath was passed so they could work, they came to the tomb to put these spices on Jesus' body so that he could have the proper burial that he deserved after living such an amazing life. Except when they arrived, there was a shocking scene awaiting them. The stone was rolled away, the body was gone, and two men in shining clothes stood there and appeared to them. And these men speak the first words that Luke records about the resurrection after it happens. They're in verses five through seven of Luke chapter 24. And they said, why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And these words have a lot to tell us about the resurrection. You know, one of the most shocking things about Christianity to modern ears is its affirmation of miracles. The Bible tells us about miracles, like the resurrection of Jesus, and it talks about them as actual historical events. And we live in a world today that by and large believes that miracles just can't be true, right? I mean, many people think things like, well, you know, back then people could get tricked into believing anything because they didn't have science, but today we have science. We know these things can't be true. And of course, that attitude totally ignores the fact that back then they couldn't have recognized miracles as miracles and extraordinary events if they didn't actually understand the way the world normally works, just like we do. But because we have this attitude in our world, a lot of people in the world today, they'll maybe like some of Jesus' teachings, but they don't like the miracles. They, they feel like that's, that's just offensive to my intelligence to expect me to believe that. And so they try and find a way to say that I, I follow Jesus' teaching while denying the miracles. So that they'll say things like, Jesus, his resurrection was a spiritual resurrection, not a physical resurrection. I mean, obviously, his body stayed in the ground. A human body cannot come back to life. But his spirit lived on in the hearts of his followers. And that's how he continues to live today. That's how he rose from the dead. And people will try and get away with calling themselves Christians while, while saying that the central truth claim of the Bible, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, didn't actually happen. But the Bible doesn't give us that option. I mean, look at the angel's words right here. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. He is not dead anymore. He is actually alive. 
If the resurrection of Jesus was just a spiritual idea in the hearts of his followers, you know what the angel could have said? He's right here, inside your heart. But the angel didn't say that. The angel said he's not here because he's alive again and he's physically moved to somewhere else because he is alive and he has a body and he can do that. Which is amazing, right? Isn't that wonderful news that Jesus is alive again? (laughs) And the Bible speaks again and again and again of the resurrection of Jesus as a historical fact. I mean, think about it. If, If someone actually rose from the dead, what are the two big things that you'd expect? You'd expect an empty tomb and you'd expect people to see them and interact with them alive again after they had died. And what do we see right at the start of today's passage? The women get there and the tomb is empty. And the passage speaks about the empty tomb as a historical reality, something that actually happened. The tomb was actually empty, the body was gone, which is exactly what you would expect if Jesus had actually come back to life. And then what happens later in the passage? Jesus appears to people and he doesn't just appear, but he points to the fact that he has a physical body that they can not only see, but touch. They're not hallucinating when they see him. He's really there. If they were hallucinating and they reached out and tried to touch him, they'd realize that there's nothing there. Why can't I touch? But there is something there. There is something they can touch because Jesus really is alive. The Bible speaks of the physical resurrection of Jesus as a historical fact. And it expects the followers of Jesus to believe that Jesus literally, physically rose from the grave. And if you compare the resurrection of Jesus to other resurrections in the Bible, like people Jesus rose from the grave, like Lazarus, it's, it's similar in the sense that yes, he was really alive again. He had a physical body again after dying and he came back to life, but it's different as well. Because if you look at someone like Lazarus, who Jesus rose from the dead, Lazarus died again, but Jesus did not. We see at the end of today's passage, that, that actually, instead of dying again, as his disciples watched, Jesus was carried up into heaven. His resurrection was different than the other resurrections we read about in the Bible. It was a lasting resurrection that wasn't stopped by a second death. And this resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus, is the central teaching of the Christian faith. Why is that? Well, at least three reasons. First, it establishes the divinity of Jesus. Think about it, without Jesus rising from the dead, we have no reason to believe that he was really God in human flesh. Yeah, he taught lots of great things, but so did lots of human teachers, so did Socrates, so did Buddha. I mean, without the resurrection, Jesus is just another teacher who got killed for saying the wrong things, which history is full of. Again, Socrates, he got killed for saying the wrong things. Without the resurrection, what sets Jesus apart from Socrates? Not much. But the resurrection shows us there's something different about Jesus. He is really God in human flesh. Second, the resurrection proves that both sin and death are defeated. The resurrection was God's ultimate way of saying he accepts the sacrifice for sin that Jesus made on the cross. And therefore, if we trust in Jesus, our sin is paid in full. And in rising from the grave, Jesus defeated not only sin, but also death. 
And both of these victories, the victory over sin and the victory over death, they're essential. Author Paul Miller puts it this way. He says, at the cross, Jesus broke the power of sin. At the resurrection, Jesus broke the power of death. Both need to be broken. If you solve only the problem of sin, then we'd all love one another, but death would haunt every relationship. If you solve only the problem of death, we'd live forever in hatred. We need both of them. The resurrection defeats the power of death and proves that sin has really been defeated once and for all, which means that if we trust in Jesus, we can now live forever in loving relationships with God and one another. The resurrection proves that sin and death have been defeated. And third, the resurrection establishes the Christian hope. The Bible teaches that at the end of time, God is going to raise his followers back to life in, in the final resurrection. And the Bible teaches that Jesus' resurrection is actually God taking that work from the, the future, from the end of history, and putting it on preview in the middle of history right now. If you look at 1 Corinthians 15, that's a big part of the argument that Paul is making there. What happened to Jesus in his resurrection is what will happen to the Christians who trust in him in the future. The Christian hope isn't that someday after we die, we'll float on clouds in the sky playing harps. No, it's that God will raise us to a new life, just like he raised Jesus to a new life, and we'll live with him forever in a world that's no longer broken, but is fully restored to the way that things are meant to be. And all of this means that the resurrection of Jesus is the central truth claim of the Christian faith. It's what all our other hopes as Christians hang on. Actually, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul goes so far as to say that if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, Christians deserve to be pitied because we're wasting our lives by believing in him. The angel's words to these women, speaking of the resurrection as a physical, historical event, they're foundational for believing in Jesus and living the Christian life. So those are the first words spoken about the resurrection, but what about Jesus' own first words after the resurrection? Well, those show us about the centrality of God's word. So let's look at God's word. Now, obviously, once the women heard from the angels that Jesus was alive and saw the empty tomb, they were excited. So they ran back to the room where the disciples were all gathered, and they shared this amazing news with all these disciples of Jesus. But of course, the disciples didn't believe them. They thought they were just making up stories. Men, right? Don't trust the women who are bringing good news. But Peter, one of the disciples, he went to the tomb to check it out for himself. He saw that it was empty, but we still don't have any indication that he believed it could really be true. But then later that day, two of the people who had been in this room when the woman came and shared this amazing news had to take a trip. They were taking a trip to a village about seven miles outside of Jerusalem. And remember, they didn't have cars then. If you were really wealthy, you might have a horse, but if you're a normal everyday person, you just gotta walk. And so they're walking seven miles from Jerusalem to this other town. And naturally, as they walk, they're talking about all the things that have happened in Jerusalem the past few days, just as we would do if a big event happened in Hong Kong and we were walking somewhere together. And as they're walking, a third person comes up to them on the road and asks, what are you talking about? And they're incredibly shocked, so shocked that they stop dead in their tracks and just stare because 
everyone knows what happened recently in Jerusalem. I mean, this would be like someone walking up to us in Hong Kong today and being like, why is everyone wearing masks? Right? To, to not know the answer to that question, you have to be living under a rock. Which, ironically, this third guy actually had been living under a rock for the past couple days because it was Jesus and he had been buried in the tomb. But he's playing dumb. He asks them to explain what's been going on. And they start telling him about all the things that happened to Jesus over the past few days. And they tell him, you know, we thought that this man was the Messiah. We thought he was going to rescue our nation but then he got killed. And now some people are saying he's alive again and we don't know what to do with all of this. And at this point, the third man, Jesus, stops asking questions and finally makes a statement to them. We see this in verses 25 and 26 of Luke chapter 24. He says to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory. And then in verse 27, Luke tells us, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Now, let me ask you a question. Have you ever tried to read the Old Testament and found it really, really hard to get through certain parts of it? Have you read through certain parts and just thought to yourself, I don't get what this is trying to say or why it's possibly important for my life? Well, Jesus right here, he's telling these men on the street that the entire Old Testament, and of course for us also the New Testament, but it hadn't been written yet at this point, the entire Old Testament is written to tell us about Jesus. Jesus and his life and death and resurrection are the key that unlocks the Old Testament and makes it make sense. Which means you won't ever fully understand the significance of Jesus' death if you just ignore the Old Testament. And you won't ever fully understand the Old Testament if you're ignoring Jesus. Right? If you're reading the Old Testament and your, your takeaway is, God will love me and accept me if I just try harder to obey. Jesus is saying right here, you're reading it wrong because the whole point of the Old Testament is Jesus. The Old Testament gives us commandments that show us we're sinners who can't save ourselves through our effort, that we need a savior to rescue us from ourselves over and over and over again. That is the central teaching of the Old Testament. Every story, every law, every prophecy, every genealogy, every instruction about how to build certain buildings, it's intended to point us to Jesus and to help us understand the fact that he was going to come, that he was going to die to rescue us from our sin, and that he was going to rise again and defeat sin and death. Jesus' death and resurrection is the climax of the story of the Bible. In my middle school and high school English classes, our teachers would teach us about storylines. And as the teacher would teach us about storylines, they would generally draw it out on the board. And it would look like a mountain. It would go up and then down. And we were taught every story starts at the bottom of the mountain, giving background information and the setting. And then there's a problem. And the good guys or protagonists try to resolve the problem. And there's this rising action. It goes up and down, up and down. You're moving your way up the mountain until you get to the climax. The, the high point of the book, the peak of the mountain. And once you've passed the peak, the big pressing questions of the book, they've either been answered or you have a good idea whether they're going to have happy or sad resolutions. The climax is the turning point. It's the decisive point of the book 
the ultimate point where once this happens, you know how the book's going to end. It's not the end of the book. There still needs to be a resolution that follows it. But once you've gotten past this climax, you know the tone that the resolution is going to have. So if you think of the story of David and Goliath, right? David shows up, there's this battle, there's this guy named Goliath who's taunting all the Israelites. David gets upset. David wants to fight him. Finally convinces everyone to let him fight. David goes out. He's facing down Goliath one-on-one. And then we get to the climax when David slings the stone and it hits Goliath in the head and knocks him over. Right? That's the climax of the story. Now at this point, Goliath is actually still alive. He's just knocked unconscious on the ground. And even if he were dead, there's two complete armies on either side of David and Goliath just waiting for a fight, right? The story is far from over. But once Goliath hits the ground, you know he's going to die. And once the champion of the other army is dead, there's really no question of who's going to win the fight. Even though the actual battle between the two armies still needs to be fought, and there's going to be some heated and tough moments before the day is over. We know how the day is going to end, right? And Jesus is saying that his death and resurrection is the climax of the Bible's storyline. It's the high point. Once that point is passed, we know how the story is going to resolve. And yeah, there's, there's still going to be tough times for us. There's still a battle for us to fight if we're his followers. But we're fighting a battle that's already been won. We know how the story ends. Because Jesus' death and resurrection is the high point of the entire Bible. The Bible, yes, it's divided into 66 books. And yes, we have this little page that says New Testament that makes it feel like it's just divided in two. But actually, they're telling one united story. Jesus says if we read the Bible as anything other than one big story about him, we're not quite reading it right. Jesus isn't just some add-on that's sort of carelessly attached to the rest of the story. He is what the whole story is about. He is the high point that the entire Bible has been pointing to. And now that he has died and risen again, we can look back and use the Bible as the interpretative lens to view his death and resurrection. And we can use his death and resurrection to interpret how to understand the rest of the Bible properly. And we live on this side of the climax of the story, which means that we now, post-resurrection, are living in the place where we can look back and we can say, because this event happened, we know how the story will end. It doesn't mean every step of the way is going to be comfortable for us or fun for us, especially right now, but it means that we can endure each step with thankfulness and joy because we know the story has a happy ending for us. And Jesus, I mean, we can see it in verse 44 when he talks to the disciples as well. He, he says the same thing, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Those are the three main divisions of the Hebrew Old Testament Bible. It's his way of saying, look, it's not just like random verses here and there that talk about me. The entire thing, the entire Old Testament, it's about me. It's telling you that I'm going to come and that I'm going to die and I'm going to rise again so that I can rescue you and save you. God's word is central to Jesus and his understanding of his life and his world and everything. It's the lens through which Jesus sees and interprets everything that happens to him.
God's word was central to how Jesus saw and understood the world. And Jesus' first words to the men on the road show us that if we want to know and follow Jesus properly, we have to know God's word and keep it central in our lives, which brings us to our response. Now, of course, with these men on the road, once they realize that it's Jesus that they've been talking to all along, they run back to Jerusalem as fast as they can to share this good news with the disciples, right? They, they come back to this room where they were earlier in the morning. They share the good news. They say it's true. It's absolutely true. Jesus is alive again. And as they're sharing, Jesus himself appears in the room and he speaks his first words to the disciples after his resurrection. And he says this in verse 36, he says to them, peace to you. What's significant about this? Well, Jesus' resurrection is meant to give us peace. Because he has conquered sin and death, we are meant to have peace from him. But notice, the people in that room did not have peace in that moment. In order for the resurrection to give us this peace, it requires a response of faith. I mean, we can see in verse 37, the disciples did not have peace when Jesus appeared to them. They were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. The resurrection in and of itself doesn't automatically give us peace. These people, they're in the same room as Jesus, staring at his resurrected body, and yet they didn't have peace because they didn't believe that it could possibly be true. They thought they were seeing a ghost. The idea of Jesus being alive again was just too fantastic for them. If you look back throughout the book of Luke, one of the major themes in the book of Luke is that these crowds will come and they'll watch Jesus do miracles and they'll marvel. That's, that's one of Luke's like key words. They marvel at what he has done. But again and again, they don't believe in him. And again and again, Luke shows that marveling without believing is the wrong response to Jesus. And interestingly, twice right here in chapter 24, we see the followers of Jesus following this exact same pattern, marveling at Jesus, but not actually believing in him. The first time is in verse 12, when Peter goes to look at the empty tomb. It says that he went home marveling at what had happened. But in the verse before, it says they didn't believe, presumably that includes Peter, and nothing says that that has changed. So he's marveling, but not believing. Wrong response, just like the crowds have had all throughout Luke. And the second time that this response happens is right here in verse 41. While they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling. Now it's pretty clear marveling at the amazing things Jesus does. It's a good response to them. They're, they're marvelous things, right? But marveling isn't the same thing as believing. Being amazed that he can do these wonderful things isn't enough to give you the peace that he offers you. The, the disciples were in the room with Jesus. They were marveling. They were amazed, but they didn't have peace. They were terrified because their marveling and amazement wasn't accompanied by faith. To make the benefits of the resurrection ours, we need faith. And if we look throughout this chapter, what we see about faith is actually that it's a gift of God. Look back at verse 16. Jesus is walking down the road with these men. 
and Jesus approaches and, and it says their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And then if we fast forward to the end of their time with Jesus in verse 31, we see that their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And then all of a sudden they believed, right? And then here in verse 36, Jesus shows up in the middle of the disciples. They disbelieve. And then in verse 45, what does it say? He opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Look at this language about eyes and minds being opened and shut. Right? How does this passage discuss these things? If you look back through these verses, actually you'll notice all these verbs are passive. These people don't choose to make themselves understand or fail to understand the truth of the resurrection. God works miraculously in their hearts to transform them from being blind and oblivious to being aware. For our hearts to understand the truth and power of the resurrection, we need God to give us understanding. And this process of God giving us understanding, it's a two-step process. The first part, giving us this sight, opening our eyes, only God can do, but we can ask for it. And the second part is our responsibility. And unless both parts are working together, we won't be able to properly understand God's word and Jesus' death and resurrection and what they mean for us. We won't be able to experience the benefits that are meant to be ours because of it. So these two parts, the first one is our eyes being open. Like I said, we can't make this happen. It's something that God alone can do. And until God opens our eyes to see the truth of his word and the beauty of Jesus, we won't believe in Jesus and we won't experience the peace and joy that his death and resurrection brings. But even though only God can open our eyes, this is definitely something we can ask for in prayer. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, I encourage you, pray to God, ask him to open your eyes and your mind, to understand his word, to understand Jesus, so you can have this freedom and forgiveness and life and peace that he offers you. And if you are a Christian, maybe you're thinking, mm, you know, my eyes are already open, don't need to do this, skip this step. And yes, it's great that your eyes are already open, but it's possible for them to be open even wider and to see even more clearly. So keep praying. Because think about it, even if you're a Christian, every moment you live in fear or bitterness or anxiety is a moment when your eyes are actually closed to some wonder of God's word or some wonder of Jesus. All of us still need our eyes to be open wider. So all of us need to keep asking God, open our eyes so we can see the wonderful things that you have for us in your word and trust them and believe them. So that's the first step, praying for God to open our eyes. And then the second step in the process of God giving us understanding, the step that we can control, is having input from God's word in our lives. Think about it this way. If you go up to the top of Sunset Peak to enjoy the beautiful view of the surrounding area, but you close your eyes when you get up there, how much of the view are you going to be able to enjoy? None of it. Now, imagine that you open your eyes, but you're standing this far away from one of the cabins up there, staring straight at the wall. Again, how much of the view of the mountaintop are you really going to be able to enjoy? Pretty much none of it. To really see and enjoy the beauty of being up on the top of the mountain, you need your eyes opened and you need to be looking in the right direction. And in the same way, having our eyes, spiritual eyes opened, 
won't help us to know God like we're supposed to if we're not also looking in the right direction, taking in God's word in our lives. God's word is like that scenic mountaintop view that we're meant to see from the top of Sunset Peak. And if God opens our eyes, but instead of enjoying that scenic view, we stare at the spiritual equivalent of a cabin wall, we're not going to gain a deeper understanding of him, even though he's given us the ability to do that. We won't be growing in our ability to live in the peace and joy that he offers us. So we need to be reading God's word, listening to God's word taught, talking about God's word with one another, absorbing it into our lives, thinking about it so that the truths that it unpacks can become ours, not just in theory, but in practice. And I realize spending lots and lots of time studying God's word isn't going to help us if God doesn't open our eyes. But even as we wait for God to open our eyes, we still have a calling to pursue it. You can think of it sort of like a bonfire. If you want a really big bonfire, you need two ingredients. You need flammable material and you need a spark. Studying God's word is like gathering wood and paper and dumping gasoline on top of it. All of those ingredients, they're never going to start a fire. But the more you gather and prepare, the brighter and hotter that fire is going to burn once the spark comes and hits it. So yes, we need the spark of God opening our eyes and minds in order for us to believe and have a deep spiritual life. But even as we wait for that spark and we pray for God to send it, if we're studying his word, that's building up the bonfire pile. It's, that's adding paper and wood and other flammable materials and dousing it with gasoline so that when that spark comes, it's just going to burn bright and hot and for a really long time with passion for Jesus. And that's the second step in the process of growing in our understanding of Jesus is studying God's word. And maybe you're thinking like, Eric, I've, I've heard a hundred times before in church that it's important to read the Bible and study it. And every time I try, I get a couple weeks, maybe a month, and then I stop. Well, if that's you, in 2021, we're going to have a church-wide Bible reading plan that I want to invite you to join in. It, we're going to read through the story of the Bible together. The sermons each week will follow the readings from the previous week. And as we do this as a church, that gives built-in accountability and encouragement to stick with it, not just for a few weeks or for a month, but throughout the entire year. So if you're looking for a good tool to help you read the Bible and encouragement to stick with it, join us as we read through the Bible story in 2021. So church, words are powerful. The words we've looked at in today's passage, the first words spoken about Jesus by the angel, spoken by Jesus to the people on the road, and then spoken by Jesus to the disciples. They show us that the resurrection of Jesus changes everything. It's the defining moment of the Bible story and of human history. And the deeper we understand Jesus' resurrection, the more we'll be able to live in the peace and joy that it offers us. And every verse of the Bible is written to help us understand it more deeply. So let us be people who read our Bibles faithfully, digging for the truth that it contains, who listen to teaching about it, who talk about it with one another, who apply it to our lives. And let us be people of prayer who beg God to open our eyes so that we can see the wonderful things his word has for us and live in light of those truths. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the resurrection. 
and the cross and that sin and death are defeated and that you offer us peace and joy and hope. I pray that we would take these things you offer and make them ours through faith, that we would know your word and love your word and build our lives around your word. God, we love you, but we want to love you more. In Jesus' name, amen.